Today's dead idea? Education makes women infertile. <laughs> yep, it's going to be a doozy today. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. We're back with another episode of Public Domain Theater 3000, where we read public domain works because we can and no one can sue us for it. <laughs> this is going to be one of our wild card episodes, which means uh, the ones that we do in between the epic series, the cuneiform series is coming out, and it's wild cards because you never know what you're going to get. Much like the 19th century, where I found this. This is from 1873, some weird, some whacked out medical idea that I discovered while I was doing my research for the Hysteria series, and it just didn't quite fit in there, so I kept it. I always wanted to do it. We're going to do it today. By the way, the Titoism series is coming. I've got plenty of research done and a lot more to do, though. I've got a stack of books from the library that's Let's see, six, seven, eight, eight books tall, and I've already returned six books to the library, so that makes, what, 14? Yeah, but I've got a lot more research, and I'm trying to find interviews, and uh, you know, I'm trying to find people to interview and stuff like that, so I'm not sure exactly when that's coming out, but it is definitely coming, okay? But today, let's do this excellent Public Domain Theater 3000 episode, and uh, just to remind everybody... When I do these, I find articles you know, that are in the public domain, and I don't read them ahead of time, because it's supposed to be like you and I are encountering them at the same time. We're going to do this together. It's going to be fun. <laughs> okay, so today's topic is a real cherry of 19th century thinking. And it just seems to belong in a museum of curiosities. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you you just can't make up. I mean, if you were writing fiction about the Victorian period and you included this, no one would believe that it was true. It would it would jump the shark to believe that somebody in the 19th century thought that education makes women infertile. <laughs> it makes it makes steampunk seem realistic. <laughs> Well, how how in the world is this going to work out? Uh, I can't wait to find out. I mean, I have some idea from the research that I've done around it because I've tried to do a little bit to find out some background on this. So it's from the 19th century, uh, 1873. And for all the 19th century's Victorian sexual mores and restrictive corsets and everything else, the 19th century was also actually a period of significant advancement for women. As we've already seen on this show, among the other things liberating women at this time was none other than the scandalous bicycle. <laughs> See our episode on the medical condition called Bicycle Face for that. That was another doozy. Also, one of my all-time favorite episodes so far. This is another medical theory in that vein. So the bicycle was liberating women, and the so-called woman question quote-unquote, was being debated in universities at this time. In hospitals, particularly in France, but also elsewhere, doctors were beginning to devote serious study to hysteria, the age-old condition traditionally ascribed to the womb wandering around the body. And we did a whole series on that and saw how Dr. Charcot and his students at the Salpêtrière, while staying very much in the patriarchal mode, began to take this feminine affliction, quote-unquote, seriously, and try to treat it in earnest. And kind of, they got beyond the idea that that womb actually went around the body, but still, it was, it was interesting. It was, let me just say it that way, and check out our series if you're interested in that. Anyway, at the same time, there was also something called the Rational Dress Movement, which advocated more practical dress for women because uh, at the time women were wearing an average of, uh, what was the poundage? We said it in the Hysteria series. Something like 14 pounds of undergarments or something like that. Don't quote me on the exact number. But that was what the average woman at the time was wearing, and the movement was about just wearing slightly more practical 
things for women, <laughs> so I could actually, you know, move about in the world and be reasonably effective and not just fainting from heat stroke all the time. Finally, in America at least, the temperance movement, um, the anti-alcohol movement, which was organized largely by women, was getting going, and, and it was actually awaking women to their political power, what they could get done if they organized together. And that fanned the flames of uh, good old-fashioned first-wave feminism. Uh, and, uh, of course, at the same time, women's suffrage was huge as well. So the 19th century was a bustling time for women, pardon the pun. Meanwhile, education and literacy was also big. That was on the rise. It was becoming more and more universal, which is, historically speaking, an almost unprecedented phenomenon, for women to, for women to enter education, especially higher education, on a widespread scale. And women's colleges, like Bryn Mawr University, were opening all over the place, and many state universities admitted both men and women. Up to 239 universities in America had opened their doors to women by 1870, according to an article I found by Grockman. So with all of this tumultuous change, then we just there, there had to be a backlash. And we go now to a quite peculiar backlash, a medical theory, uh, which finds its place amidst this context. But it was not the ravings of some backwards grandpa with a pitchfork or something. It was a theory by a medical doctor, a certified MD, and a professor at Harvard University, a certain Edward H. Clark, in his book delightfully entitled Sex in Education, or A Fair Chance for the Girls, was an instant hit. And Virginia G. Drachman of Tufts University, same one I quoted earlier, describes its reception. Sex in Education was widely popular. A local bookseller in Ann Arbor, Michigan, sold over 200 copies in a single day. A second edition was published little more than a week after the first, and it went through 17 printings in 13 years. Its success not only encouraged parents to confront the so-called risks of sending their daughters to college, it placed the most ardent supporters of higher education for women on the defensive. Indeed, the president of Bryn Mawr College, M. Carey Thomas, acknowledged that she did not know, quote, whether women's health could stand the strain of education, unquote. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is not just uh, some... So this was not just some crackpot theory that nobody paid attention to. This actually made quite a splash. It's a total crock, of course, but that's easy for us to say from our 21st century perspective. I mean, at the time... It had the veneer of respectable science, being the work of a Harvard professor, and also forming its argument around a reasonably scientific-sounding theory. Um, like I said, I know a tiny bit about it from what I've read. I'm going to save that for when we get into the book, but it sounds somewhat reasonable, at least to a layman. I mean, much like the retracted and repeatedly disproven work of Andrew Wakefield, which is that modern-day article that started the anti-vax movement, it had the outward appearance of decent science. And also, much like that same work, it struck a nerve with the general public, stirring up a public outcry and emotional protest. It just seemed to press the right buttons and give people the right reason to get behind it. Except instead of being anti-vaxxers in this case, the people were anti-women's editors or something. something. I don't know what you would call it. And instead of saying vaccines made my baby autistic, they were saying education made my nerdy girl sterile. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be an interesting one. And uh, with that introduction, we can dive in. Okay, so going now to the work itself. This is a whole book, so like I said, I will um, you know, edit out the dead parts here, as I usually do for these public domain theater ones. We'll start with the preface, and then we'll jump around. Okay, so the author writes, About a year ago, the author was honored by an invitation to address the New England Women's Club in Boston. He accepted the invitation and selected for his subject the relation of sex to the education of women. The essay excited an unexpected amount of discussion. 
Brief reports of it found their way into the public journals. Teachers and others interested in the education of girls in different parts of the country who read these reports or heard them made inquiry by letter or otherwise respecting it. Various and conflicting criticisms were passed upon it. This manifestation of interest in a brief and unstudied lecture to a small club appeared to the author to indicate a general appreciation of the importance of the theme he had chosen, compelled him to review carefully the statements he had made, and has emboldened him to think that their publication in a more comprehensive form, which added physiological details and clinical illustrations, might contribute something, however little, to the cause of sound education. <laughs> How's that for scientific method? So he goes to a party, makes some off-head comments. <laughs> People seem to like it, and he thinks, hey, maybe I should find some evidence behind this. <laughs> and he just comes right out and says it at the very beginning of his book. Well, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Well, maybe we should move on. All right, so the work itself. Sex in Education, Part 1, Introductory. It begins with a quote from Plato. Ooh, classy. Is there anything better in a state than that both women and men be rendered the very best? There is not, Plato. It is idle to say that what is right for man is wrong for woman. Pure reason, abstract right and wrong, have nothing to do with sex. They neither recognize nor know it. They teach that what is right or wrong for man is equally right and wrong for women. Both sexes are bound by the same code of morals. Both are amenable to the same divine law. Both have a right to do the best they can, or, to speak more justly, both should feel the duty and have the opportunity to do their best. Each must justify its existence by becoming a complete development of manhood and womanhood, and each should refuse whatever limits or dwarfs that development. So he's framing his argument, right? He's framing that I'm here. I, I'm trying to do the best for both men and women, allow them to reach their highest potential, which is what the whole point of education is, right? And he's saying that if there's anything that's going to get in the way of women reaching their highest potential, then it's, we're sort of duty-bound duty to, you know, help them with that. So he's saying, like, hey, I'm the good guy here. No surprise with that. Everybody thinks they're the good guy. And he's probably well-intentioned. I mean, most people are. Just, yeah. The problem of woman's sphere, to use the modern phrase, is not to be solved by applying to it abstract principles of right and wrong. Its solution must be obtained from physiology, not from ethics or metaphysics. Ooh, very modern. The question must be submitted to Agassiz and Huxley, not to Kant or Calvin, the church or pope. Without denying the self-evident proposition that whatever a woman can do, she has a right to do, the question at once arises, what can she do? And this includes the further question, what can she best do? A girl can hold a plow and ply a needle after a fashion. If she can do both better than a man, then she ought to be both farmer and seamstress. But if, on the whole, her husband can hold best the plow and she ply best the needle, they should divide the labor. He should be master of the plow and she mistress of the loom. The questio vexata, uh, vexing question, of woman's sphere will be decided by her organization. This limits her power and reveals her divinely appointed tasks just as man's organization limits his power and reveals his work. In the development of the organization is to be found the way of strength and power for both sexes. Limitation or abortion of development leads both to weakness and failure. Okay, so interesting further framing here. So first of all, he's saying religion shouldn't be the deciding factor here. Religion nor philosophy, it should be science, physiology. Okay, so framing his argument as very modern. Right, 19th century, this was, science was big in the 19th century. We might not think of it today as, we think of it today as being somewhat backwards, but, you know, that's a, a, an anachronistic perspective. At the time, they were very futuristic, almost. So he's framing himself as being of the utmost modernity here. But at the same time, notice that he slips in the religious imperatives as well, because he says reveals her divinely appointed tasks, right? So 
he's putting on the veneer of science, but slipping in through the back door this kind of traditionalism and uh, religious sort of feeling and justification about the issue. Okay? Neither is there any such thing as inferiority or superiority in this matter. Man is not superior to woman, nor woman to man. The relation of the sexes is one of equality, not of better and worse, or of higher and lower. By this, it is not intended to say that the sexes are the same. They are different, widely different from each other, and so different that each can do in certain directions what the other cannot, and in other directions where both can do the same things, one sex, as a rule, can do them better than the other. Okay? There are those who write and act as if their object were to assimilate woman as much as possible to man by dropping all that is distinctly feminine out of her and putting into her as large an amount of masculineness as possible. <laughs> okay, so once again, framing, right? So what he's doing here is he's kind of co-opting what I can only imagine is the party line of the suffragettes and other kind of first wave feminists going on at the time, which is to say uh, equality for the sexes. And he's saying, look, I'm for equality of the sexes. Uh, and they should both have equal potential to realize their own full potential. But, but, then, what, but then he takes that and he turns the argument by saying, but we also have to recognize difference and diversity, right? Diver well, in the 19th century, diversity probably wasn't seen as, as much of a value as it is today, but still that's part of his argument here. So he's saying, look, the sexes are different. They're built differently. They can do different things better. And, I mean, you can't exactly completely argue with that because there are obviously physiological differences between the sexes, but what he's doing is essentializing the sexes so that it feels like the, the most relevant difference is that you know, is whether you have a penis or a vagina, and that is obviously not the case. I mean, you have tall and quite you know strong women, and you have s smaller and more slightly built men, and <laughs> there's such variety that the difference between the tallest and the smallest in each sex is a greater difference than the difference between the two sexes. That's that's how I would re like talk back to that argument from the 21st century. But obviously, I that's you know with the benefit of hindsight, people in 19th century thought differently, and that's kind of the whole you know that's kind of the whole point of these projects of going back and look at these to see how they thought. So I think we pretty much get the drift of what he's doing here in the introduction. He's framing his argument in ways that make him look modern, but also invoke traditional values, because that's the audience he really wants to grab. Okay, so let's scoot on here to see if we can find anything else that's juicy that we can get, really get us into his argument here. Okay, so this is weird. Okay, so, so remember he just uh, talked about how some people are trying to achieve equality by making women more masculine, right? Whatever that means. And he says, these persons tacitly admit the error just alluded to, that woman is inferior to man, that being the error part, I think, and strive to get rid of the inferiority by making her a man. There may be some subtle physiological basis for such views, for some who hold and advocate them are of those who, having passed middle life without the symmetry and development that maternity gives, meaning motherhood, I assume, have drifted into the hermaphroditic condition that sometimes accompanies spinsterism. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, if you don't have children, you're gonna turn into something like a hermaphrodite? <laughs> what? I don't think I know any non-mothers in their later ages who have had that happen. Do you? <laughs> hmm. Okay, interesting. All right, so he goes on for quite a while in the introduction, drawing out the point that what's good for a boy is not necessarily what's good for a girl, and they should have different kinds of education. And then here he follows with a rather eloquent paragraph here. The delicate bloom, early but rapidly fading beauty, and singular pallor of American girls and women 
have almost passed into a proverb. Circumstances have repeatedly carried me to Europe, where I am always surprised by the red blood that fills and colors the faces of ladies and peasant girls, reminding one of the canvas of Rubens and Murillo. And I'm always equally surprised on my return by crowds of pale, bloodless female faces that suggest consumption, scrofula, anemia, and neuralgia. To a large extent, our present system of educating girls is the cause of this pallor and weakness. Okay, that is interesting. I wonder if there actually was any difference in how girls um, presented themselves, dressed, or put on their makeup, or whatever that might be actually presenting an observable difference between European and American women, or if he's just kind of just making it up. <laughs> I could believe that too. <laughs> just convinced himself that there was a difference based on, I saw two girls in Europe and, and they, they look different. <laughs> I could imagine that being the case. But it does make me wonder, okay, how is this working for his argument? Because if this is logically going to work for his argument, there has to be a difference in how American girls are educated and European girls are educated. That is something that this, turn, this argument would have to turn on if he's saying that the way we're doing it in America is creating a difference that is negative compared to Europeans. So I guess we'll have to keep our eyes open to see if that comes up later here. This, this all makes me wonder if in Europe that women's higher education was not as popular or wasn't getting going as fast or something, and that's the difference he's seeing. Perhaps. I'll have to look into that later. All right. I, at this point, I really want to find out what his main argument is here. So I'm going to skip a, a lot here. Okay. Part two, chiefly physiological. Okay, this is interesting. Okay, so he is setting up for his argument by describing how the physiology of the human body works. And the theory that he relies on is interesting. He says, the sacred number, three, dominates the human frame. There is a trinity in our anatomy, three systems to which all the organs are directly or indirectly subsidiary, divide and control the body. First, there is the nutritive system, composed of stomach, intestines, liver, pancreas, glands, and vessels by which food is elaborated, effete matter removed, the blood manufactured, and the whole organization nourished. This is the commissariat. Secondly, there is the nervous system, which coordinates all the organs and functions, which enables man to entertain relations with the world around him and with his fellows, and through which intellectual power is manifested and human thought and reason made possible. Thirdly, there is the reproductive system, by which the race is continued and its grasp on earth assured. The first two of these systems are alike in each sex. They are so alike that they require a similar training in each and yield in each a similar result. And he goes on to say that the nerve force is also the same. No analysis or dynamometer. <laughs> There's steampunk for you. No analysis or dynamometer has discovered or measured any chemical action or nerve force that stamps either of these systems as male or female. Okay, so the nutritive and the nervous are both similar between males and females. So that's interesting. He completely admits that man's brain and woman's brain, same. Okay. That's interesting. But then he goes on to say, with regard to the reproductive system, the case is altogether different. Well, obviously, right? Woman, in the interest of the race, is dowered with a set of organs peculiar to herself, whose complexity, delicacy, sympathies, and force are among the marvels of creation. Okay, yes, blah, 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 obviously. So it's interesting that how I think he's going to set this up. He's going to say, like, well, because of the reproductive system being different, the others have to act differently, too, I think, right? Okay, blah, 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 some stuff about Adam and Eve. Ugh, no surprise there. Ever since the time of Hippocrates, woman has been physiologically described as enjoying and has always recognized herself as enjoying, or at least as possessing, a tripartite life. So a three-part life. Uh, the first period extends from birth to about the age of 12 or 15 years, the second from the end of the first period to about the age of 45, and the third from the last boundary 
So the final passage into the unknown. Okay, I think we're getting into his actual argument here, how he's going to set this up. So the different phases of a woman's life, I think, are going to become key to how she has to use her energies during those times in order to get to realize her potential. All this is obvious and known, and yet in our educational arrangements, little heed is paid to the fact that the first of these critical voyages is made during a girl's educational life and extends over a very considerable portion of it. Okay, yes. Okay, so in other words, he's setting up to say that, look, there's this peculiar, there's this special time in a woman's life that happens to coincide with when she's being educated, and if we don't pay attention to both things and treat her holistically, don't you love that word, uh, and take into account both of these things, then we could screw things up for her reproductive system, basically. Okay, so puberty, right? So his main point here is, like, he's concerned with women's puberty and the fact that it's at the same, that it happens at the same time as her education, okay? Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so he admits that, obviously, boys go through puberty at the same time as well that they're being educated, but he says, no such extraordinary task calling for such rapid expenditure of force, building up such a delicate and extensive mechanism within the organism, a house within a house, an engine within an engine is imposed upon the male physique at the same epoch. Hmm, okay. The organization of the male grows steadily, gradually, and equally from birth to maturity. Uh, no. <laughs> actually, actually, it's completely the opposite. Boys tend to remain, like, shorter and with a higher-pitched voice for a longer period than girls, and then kind of rapidly go through puberty. So that's kind of interesting. Okay, now he's getting into the full theory here. The system never does two things well at the same time. The muscles and the brain cannot functionate <laughs> in their best way at the same moment. One cannot meditate a poem and drive a saw simultaneously without dividing his force. He may poetize fairly and saw poorly, or he may saw fairly and poetize poorly, or he may both saw and poetize indifferently. Brain work and stomach work interfere with each other if attempted together. The digestion of a dinner calls force to the stomach and temporarily slows the brain. The experiment of trying to digest a hearty supper and to sleep during the process has sometimes cost the careless experimenter his life. His life? <laughs> you die from it? I don't know about that. Anyway, if the schoolmaster overworks the brains of his pupils, he diverts force to the brain that is needed elsewhere. He spends in the study of geography and arithmetic of Latin, Greek, and chemistry in the brainwork of the schoolroom force that should have been spent in the manufacture of blood, muscle, and nerve that is in growth. The results are monstrous brains and puny bodies abnormally active cerebration and abnormally weak digestion, flowing thought and constipated bowels, lofty aspirations, and neuralgic sensations. Okay, so <laughs> that's key to his argument, right? He's, he's saying that there's a finite amount of energy that, the, that a, the body has to spend on its various things it needs to do. And remember that it has these three divisions, right? The nerves, the nutritive, and the reproductive. So he hasn't said it yet, but he's definitely just about around the corner to say it, that if you spend too much on the brain, then there's not going to be enough left over for the reproductive organs to develop fully. I'm sure that's what he's about to say. Yep, and here it is, the like the very next paragraph. Nature has reserved the catamenial week for the process of ovulation, catamenial, I wonder what that means. Of or relating to the menses or menstruation. Okay. Nature has reserved the catamenial week for the process of ovulation and for the development and perfection of the reproductive system. Previously to the age of 18 or 20, opportunity must be periodically allowed for the accomplishment of this task. Both muscular and brain labor must be remitted enough to yield sufficient force for the work. 
If the reproductive machinery is not manufactured then, it will not be later. If it is imperfectly made then, it can only be patched up and not made perfect afterwards. There you go. So there he comes right out and says it. So his basic theory here is if you give too much energy to the brain, then there's not going to be enough left over for the reproductive organs. It's just like in, in Star Trek, you know, where, where it's Captain Kirk is like, Scotty, give me, give me warp speed, right? And Scotty's like, I need more power to the engines. That's, that's basically what he's saying. Like, we can't use it up on our shields or on our weapons. We have to put it to the engines, you know, or our scanners. I guess scanners and sensors and things would be the equivalent of, of brain stuff. But we need to give everything to the engines. And what's interesting to me here, and he doesn't say this explicitly, I think it's implied, is that for women, there's like, there's a should here. So, so far he's just said like, if you develop the brain, the reproductive organs will not develop as well. He hasn't yet come out and explicitly said that you shouldn't do that at the expense of the reproductive organs. But I think that we can read an, like, an unstated undertone here, saying that like there's something special about women and their place is to be mothers. So we'll see if he comes out and makes that explicit or not. It'd be interesting if he didn't, if he was fine with people making their own personal decisions about how they want their body to develop. That would be interesting. If he's like, look, I just want to warn you that this is going to happen, but it's up to you. That would be interesting if he says that. We'll see what happens here. All right, I'm going to scoot on. Hmm. Okay, so for the rest of part two, he goes into considerable depth of um, what they knew at the time about um, how like women's development and how the reproductive organs work and things like that, which that would be very interesting in its own right to look at what they knew about that at the time, but we'll be here forever if I go through that. Um, I did not see anything more that compared women's development to men's development specifically. So the entire argument seems to be resting upon this assumption that men's sexual development is different and more like gradual and therefore educating men and spending all of this energy on men's sensors, right, doesn't take away much needed energy from the engines, from the reproductive organs. Don't see any deeper arguments that support that or facts that support that. Uh, just, that's kind of interesting there. I might have missed it just by skipping through things, but okay. So part three is entitled Chiefly Clinical. So I think, hmm, okay. So now he gets us into some case studies that have to do with education. So this should be good. Okay. The following case illustrates one of the ways in which our present school methods of teaching girls generate a menorrhagia and its consequent evils. Okay, menorrhagia, I guess, is how it's pronounced, and it refers to excessive menstrual bleeding. Okay, so uh, the following case illustrates one of the ways in which our present school methods of teaching girls generate a menorrhagia and its consequent evils. Miss A, a healthy, bright, intelligent girl, entered a female school an institution that is commonly but oddly called a seminary for girls in the state of New York at the age of 15. She was then sufficiently well-developed and had a good color. All the functions appeared to act normally and the catamenia were fairly established. So um, she was menstruating. She was ambitious as well as capable and aimed to be among the first in the school. Her temperament was what physiologists call nervous an expression that does not denote a fidgety make, but refers to a relative activity of the nervous system. She was always anxious about her recitations. No matter how carefully she prepared for them, she was ever fearful lest she should trip a little and appear to less advantage than she hoped. She went to school regularly every week and every day of the school year, just as boys do. She paid no more attention to the periodical tides of her organization than her companions, and that was none at all. She recited standing at all times, or at least whenever a standing recitation was the order of the hour. She soon found, and this history is taken from her own lips, 
that for a few days during every fourth week the effort of reciting produced an extraordinary physical result. The attendant anxiety and excitement relaxed the sluices of the system that were already physiologically open and determined a hemorrhage as the concomitant of a recitation. Subjected to the inflexible rules of the school, unwilling to seek advice from anyone, almost ashamed of her own physique, she ingeniously protected herself against exposure and went on intellectually leading her companions and physically defying nature. At the end of a year, she went home with a gratifying report from her teachers in pale cheeks and a variety of aches. Her parents were pleased and perhaps a little anxious. She is a good scholar, said her father, somewhat overworked possibly, and so he gave her a trip among the mountains and a week or two at the seashore. After her vacation, she returned to school and repeated the previous year's experience, constant sustained work, recitation and study for all days alike, a hemorrhage once a month that would make the stroke or of the university crew falter. <laughs> that much flow? <laughs> wow. So like rowing. It's just, oh my gosh. Okay. Um, and a brilliant scholar. Before the expiration of the second year, nature began to assert her authority. The paleness of Miss A's complexion increased, an unaccountable and uncontrollable twitching of a rhythmical sort got into the muscles of her face and made her hands go and feet jump. <laughs> now she's getting twitchy, okay. She was sent home and her physician called, who at once diagnosticated chorea, or in parentheses, St. Vetus's dance. I guess that's her diagnosis and said she had studied too hard and wisely prescribed no study and a long vacation. Her parents took her to Europe, a year of the sea and the Alps, of England and the continent, the Rhine and Italy, worked like a charm. The sluice ways were controlled, the blood saved, and color and health returned. She came back seemingly well, and at the age of 18 went to her old school once more. During this time, not a word had been said to her by her parents, her physician, or her teachers about any periodical care of herself and the rules of the school did not acknowledge the catamenia. The labor and regimen of the school soon brought on the old menorrhagic trouble in the old way, with the addition of occasional faintings to emphasize nature's warnings. She persisted in getting her education, however, and graduated at 19, the first scholar and an invalid. Again, her parents were gratified and anxious. She is overworked, said they, and wondered why girls break down so. Okay, well, <laughs> okay, so to this guy, he's like, look, it's obvious. Every time she studied, she had menstrual problems. Every time she didn't study, they got better. It's obvious the two are connected. But <laughs> what's not being recognized here, clearly, is, I mean, her symptoms just sound like symptoms of extreme stress. Yeah, she's probably overworked. She's probably trying super hard uh, because she's being held to a much higher standard than the men are because it's an extremely patriarchal time where I'm sure there's a lot of prejudices and forces worked against her. And that can, like, really stress a person out, I'm sure. And it's not surprising to me that that would come out in ways peculiar to her physiology, you know. If menstruation is there to be messed with by stress, I'm sure it's going to be messed with. Uh, I mean, I, I don't menstruate myself, so I can't say how that works, but it isn't surprising to me. But the key, the root of the problem is not the education. The root of the problem, I would guess, is the freaking stress and pressures put on to a, you know, a minority who is in university here, women being, you know, the minority here. And probably not just the pressures put on by those around her, although I'm sure those are huge, but also this, the pressure put on herself to prove herself as a woman that she can be the equal of a man in education. I wouldn't doubt at all that that is what's actually going on here, but that doesn't seem to be anything that this author takes into account whatsoever. It's just completely goes over his head. He's blind to it, because in 1873, I don't know if anybody was even, like, you know, bringing that to anyone's attention. I don't know what the stage was in discussing the psychological pressures that accompany a woman in a patriarchal institution. I, 
I'm not sure that that was that you know, was yet hitting the radar of academics and doctors. I mean, what we saw in hysteria is was all was very much similar. Like a lot of the things that were being treated by Dr. Charcot and the others in uh, the Salpetriere Hospital of France later be turned into diagnoses that we still have us with us today, like um, bipolar disorder and dissociative disorders of various kinds uh, that are you know much more brought on by stress rather than peculiarities of the woman's you know physique. So it would make sense that what we're dealing with the root cause is something more like stress, but it's being interpreted as something unique to women because that's the lens that doctors of this era were looking at women with. They just see woman as the first thing they think when they look at this patient, and as a result, they think, well, her symptoms must be caused by something to do with her being a woman, rather than being a human. <laughs> so I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what we're seeing here. So, yeah, I think, I think we've pretty much got what, he's, what his whole theory is and it seems fairly clear how he's wielding his quote-unquote evidence. Um, you know, that that kind of case study doesn't exactly give him, it's not exactly a smoking gun for his theory. But remember when I said at the beginning that it, it kind of sounds science-y? Well, it does, right? I mean, the idea that you can only take on so much, you know, energy-giving stuff, right? We would, call, we would just say calories now, I suppose. Um, and then there's a finite amount of energy that you have, and that has to be di diverted to certain systems, and you can't just give an infinite amount to everything. There has to be some kind of reconciling of, uh, you know, does each system get enough, you know, of, of the overall, you know, an, a big enough piece of the pie. But the, where he goes wrong is <laughs> just <laughs> completely... Uh, understanding, misunderstanding, completely misunderstanding how the systems work based on this very simplified tripartite system. And I'm not sure if that was actually a current theory of how things worked at the time among even the most educated, you know, doctors and things. Well, I mean, he is among those. He's from Harvard, right? But in any case, nowadays, with the sort of hindsight and, and privilege of you know, looking back from modern times, we know that it's so much more nuanced than that. And you can't just make such a simplistic assumption as, well, there's three systems in the body, and if you give a bunch of energy to two of them, there's not going to be enough left over for three. First of all, you know, what kind of energy and how much is enough for the reproductive system. And secondly, I mean, maybe education and the reproductive systems go hand in hand. He's making the assumption that reproductive systems belong to the physical body and therefore working, you know, doing kind of physical labor isn't going to take away from it because it's both part of the same system. That seems to be his idea, whereas the mind is different, and that's going to take away from uh, the physical systems, including the reproductive system. Today, we don't have that kind of a you know view of the mind and the body. The mind and the body are one thing, and they all draw from the same energy resource. So it's you know maybe the different systems within the body have some kind of competition for energy, but it's not going to be. You can't understand that simplistically the way he does. I think that's where he starts to spiral down into a, you know, just a, a death dive of silliness. <laughs> now I, I could totally see like a humane law that gave women off, you know, a couple of days off per month when they're menstruating or something, if they got cramps or whatever. <laughs> but he's making an argument that's considerably more radical than that, which is that it makes them infertile if they don't. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of the kind of thing that you can halfway sign on, but then there's this crazy guy that just takes it all the way to its logical conclusion, that kind of situation. And it just feels 
awkward for everybody. <laughs> Here's a case study where somebody actually died. How do you die from excessive education? <laughs> let's, let's find out. Miss G worked her way through New England primary, grammar, and high schools to a Western college, which she entered with credit to herself and from which she graduated, confessedly its first scholar, leading the male and female youth alike. All that need be told of her career is that she worked as a student continuously and perseveringly through the years of her first critical epoch and for a few years after it without any sort of regard to the periodical type of her organization. It never appeared that she studied excessively in other respects or that her system was weakened while in college by fevers or other sickness. Not a great while after graduation, she began to show signs of failure and some years later died under the writer's care. Like the preceding case, it was not so much the result of overwork as of unphysiological work. She was unable to make a good brain that could stand the wear and tear of life and a good reproductive system that should serve the race at the same time that she was continuously spending her force in intellectual labor. Nature asked for a periodical remission and did not get it, and so Miss G died. <laughs> Educated to death. <laughs> oh my god. I think, to put a cap on this, I think what we're seeing, what I want, what I want to ask, and the book is not going to give us this, the answer to this, but what I want to ask is why did this hit such a nerve with the general public. Why did why was this such a hit with the general public? And I I have to imagine again similar to the anti-vax thing is it it gave people a way to talk about something that they cared deeply about, you know, loving their children which is part of this, I think, but also um fear of what happens if women become educated you know, especially higher education. I think that those two points are really what hits deep down for the general public in 1873 and makes this a hit. And it gives them a way to voice those fears and, and emotions in a way that sounds respectable in a public forum, because you've got, apparently, the power of science and the, you know, knowledge on your side. And so it, it make, it's empowering. It's empowering and it makes you feel like you're right and it, it motivates you to stand up and say, no, damn it, we're not going to take it anymore. Let my girl go on vacation. <laughs> Don't try to teach her, of all things. You're going to turn her into some kind of like weird, deranged... You know, I, I can't imagine people, you know, drawing chick tracts about you know, education of women, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the last chapter of the book is called The European Way, and he says, wouldn't it be great if we could know how education of young girls is conducted in Europe, where the girls are so much more beautiful and so much less fragile and sickly than American girls? And he says, yep, wouldn't that be great? I don't know. <laughs> but he says he wrote to some of his friends in Europe, and not many of them wrote back. <laughs> but he quotes, he gives three letters, all from Germany, and at least two of the three clearly say that in Germany, when young girls are menstruating, they stay home from school. And the third one, I don't know, it's not as clear. I don't know what, how that's to be taken. But he, so he, so he's only got three data points, and he's extrapolating to all of Europe from three data points only in Germany. So anyway, in his conclusion, that's the end of his book, so this conclusion is clearly like, this is what we should be doing in American education, is keeping our girls home from school during menstruation, and, you know, giving the girls a fair chance. Okay, the last thing that I that I really want to know, though, is if I've missed anything regarding boys and how their development works. So let's do a keyword search and see if we can turn up anything. Okay, here's something kind of interesting that approaches acceptable evidence for 
um, worrying more about women during their um, puberty than than men. Uh, he says, as might be expected, the mortality of girls is greater at this period than that of boys, an additional reason for imposing less labor on the former at that time. According to the authority of M. M. Quitillet and Smits, the mortality of the two sexes is equal in childhood, or that of the male is greatest, but that of the female rises between the ages of 14 and 16 to 1.28 to one male death. For the next four years, it falls again to 1.05 females to one male death. Okay, well, that's something, I guess. Nope, that's it. Okay, I just I just went through the entire book with the keyword search for the word boys, and that's all I can find. That that one little shred of hardly applicable evidence is really all that he does as far as examination of his assumption that boys' development doesn't need as much rest as girls' development. That's really that's really it. Okay, so I think that's enough of that. We get the drift of his book. And uh, the last thing that we should do is talk about how did this dead idea die? Well, basically, women weren't going to take this lying down. <laughs> there was a backlash to this backlash. And Drachman, who I quoted earlier, explains, While college presidents defended women's higher education, educated women went on the attack repudiating the assertions in Sex and Education and declaring the book a dangerous assault on women's education and autonomy. Four books by women defending women's higher education appeared in 1874 alone, the year after Sex and Education first appeared. So that's a swift response right there. Four books within a year. That's, yeah, interesting. In 1877, Dr. Mary Putnam Jacobi a graduate of the prestigious École Médecine in Paris, won Harvard's prestigious Boylston Medical Prize for her essay based on a survey of over 250 women which refuted the need for rest during menstruation. And uh, then Clark's theory, uh, as given in his book, was finally laid to rest by a study by Annie Howe in 1885 called Health Statistics of Women College Graduates. And this was an important study at the time, but it also, I mean, it had to be like, are we serious? Do we really have to do this study? Really, do we have to divert important resources to take down an idea this ridiculous? <laughs> uh, I mean, you think of all the studies that have been done to disprove the anti-vax thing, and all of the public funds that must have consumed that didn't have to be spent on that if there was never this ridiculous, stupid movement. So, and, I, and I'm not pulling any punches. I, I mean, active, and anybody who is with the anti-vax thing, just read the actual science and you'll see what I mean. I just, I'm sorry. I, I have no pity. In any case, I would have no pity for this sex and education theory at the time either. I'm just saying, imagine how much was consumed in order to put this down and disprove this. That really could have gone elsewhere. I mean, it's just, it's sad. That's what it is. So Suzanne Gold explains in an article on the website of the American Association of University Women uh, a little bit about this Annie House thing. So she says, Annie Howes, who led the ACA's survey committee at the time, developed a series of 40 questions and sent them to 1,290 members. Of those women, 705 submitted responses. The results of the study showed that 78% were in good health and 5% in fair health, and that, not surprisingly, education did not adversely affect women's health. The final report, Health Statistics of Female College Graduates, was published in conjunction with the Massachusetts Bureau of Statistics of Labor. And there you have it. The idea is put down. Finally, the theory is exposed to pseudoscience, and apparently it just couldn't hold on. But like I said at the beginning, it does make me wonder if there were devotees who just only became more radical with this, you know, rather than withering away. I mean... As you see with the anti-vax thing, 
people just get more radical when they're shown the evidence. They, they find ways to dismiss the evidence or interpret it as somehow actually showing that they are right after all. It's just amazing what the human mind can do when you're really emotionally invested in something that means something deep down to you. And it's, it's quite similar to followers of failed predictions of the end of the world, actually, um, where it, the, the, the evidence is staring you in the face that once the date comes and goes and the world's still there, obviously you were wrong. But what, what researchers actually find is that these people only become more radical after that. And they find reasons why their original prediction was not correct, but that now they've got it. Now they know the right date and the end of the world really is coming. And now it's this new date. And did it just, it, that's, that's how the human mind works when it really, really wants to believe something that means something to you. I, I wonder if there were people like this clustered around the sex and education book. Unfortunately, I was not able to turn up any evidence of that. I don't know whether that was the case or not. I assume not, or if so, then it must have been a small minority and quite quiet. Anyway, one way or another, the movement did fade, but its memory continued to haunt education. Suzanne Gold concludes in her article, It was still a vivid memory at their, meaning the AAUWs, the, what was it? American Association of University Women. It was still a vivid memory at their 25-year anniversary meeting held in Boston, Massachusetts in 1908. In the welcoming address, Florence Cushing reminisced about the days, quote, a little more than a quarter century ago when, almost within a stone's throw of this building, one of the noted physicians of Boston wrote, it is the first observation of a European landing on our shores that the women of the country are a feeble race. She continued with a greeting to Clark. Some of the remnants of this feeble race are here to give you welcome tonight. <laughs> uh, so, in other words, she's, she's having a laugh, right, in 1908, 25 years after putting down this idea by saying, well, here we are. We're still in higher education. And we are <laughs> not feeble and not the less healthy for it. But you can, you can tell, you know, it's like having gone through war or something, you know. It's, it's like, well, that sucked. We're still here, but that sucked. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think that's a good place to leave off too for today. So I, I hope you found this interesting. I certainly found this interesting. What's always the most interesting for me about these Public Domain Theater 3000 episodes is seeing how people thought about things, which is really the whole point of, of all of our Dead Ideas show. It's, it's about perspective taking and putting yourself in the shoes of a, of a people from another time and place who thought radically different from you and being like, wow, what was that like? And the whole point of the Public Domain Theater 3000s is not just not to make fun of these silly ideas, although we certainly have fun with them, but really to get their actual words so that you can see their actual thoughts. That's why we go back to these actual articles rather than just reading a summary where you get the facts about what happened. But no, we get the actual words and see how they thought about these things. So we can, we can get that perspective-taking angle. And so I, I think this episode has been, you know, a real exercise in that. What was it like to think like a person who could potentially entertain the notion that education makes women infertile? <laughs> I just, it's, like I said, it's a doozy, but it was fun. So there you have it. Um, we'll be back next week with uh, next, the next installment of our epic series. We're doing cuneiform right now. Uh, the Titoism series is coming. I don't know when, but it is coming. So you can look forward to all of that stuff. And if you like what we're doing here, if you want to support us, if you want to join our crusade to prove that education is not unhealthy for women, then why not support the show? You can go to... Uh, www.patreon.com forward slash dead ideas pod 
and uh, contribute and you get a portrait in return. I'll draw you in the time period and culture of your choosing. And we have lots and lots of examples of listeners who have had us do that that you can see on our website at deadideas.net. So take a look and uh, support the show if you want. All right. I'll see you next week, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.